0: You have stepped in the door of imagination and clarification. You've stepped in to the question zone. And now for the question zone on the Bellator Christie podcast, welcome your hosts, the cowboy apologist, Curtis Everlow and Dr. Brian Chilton.
1: Thanks for tuning in with us. Each episode of this Question Zone is designed to open up conversation and give up biblical answers. My full intent is to ask the questions you may have to the topics that are relevant to the day and age that we live, giving Brian and I an opportunity to show you how to look biblically at the culture and how we live that out. Well, hello, Brian. Hello, my friend. How are you? Good, good, yeah, yeah. It's been good. Um, we've actually been pretty blessed. Had some pretty decent weather up until just about now. So, um, got a little little dusting of snow today, and uh, winter is moving in just a little bit more and more creeping in. But yeah, I think it's. Yeah. How about you
0: guys? I think it's blown down this way because we haven't gotten any snow. But uh, if we, we'll just. I'll just say this: if if we did have any precipitation, it would have been snow. By the way, can you, can you hold up your mug again? You see, see, there's a good connection here. So he's got the cow, and I got the Burger King. <laughs> he's the producer. I'm a consumer. <laughs>
1: that (laughs) yeah we were talking before the podcast
0: and no veggie burgers that that was pure beef at least i hope it was
1: (laughs) that's what i ordered anyhow no no veggie burgers harmed in this episode. yeah yeah we're supposed to um if it was clear we were supposed to be able to see um the aurora borealis tonight oh wow um, tonight and into this into this week um and yeah it's it's too cloudy the the fog is kind of set in clouds are kind of set in a little deep so yeah, i don't know if we'll be able to if it'll clear off or not but um we're right in that path uh right now to be able to see it so well hey if you do be
0: sure to take some pictures and send it our way i'd, I'd love to post it on the website or or even uh, you know, on our social media pages it's a beautiful site
1: yeah yeah well let's get started in this because we have some here that um that i'd like to get get rolling on as far as um, we had some some uh Engagement with some listeners and some readers, um, and they asked some questions here. Um, uh, the first one is: What does the title "The Father" indicate about the first person of the Trinity? Does this title relate to the economic Trinity, or to the ontological Trinity, or
0: both? I tell you what, Chris. If you don't mind, this is a listener question sent sent by. Uh, uh, a person going by the tag name Learning123. How about read the first three questions together because they really all really can be handled together in um, with, with
1: what they ask. Oh, okay. Yeah, certainly. I sure can. So the second question is, what does the title, The Sun, indicate about the second person of the Trinity? Does this title relate to the Economic Trinity or the Ontological Trinity or both? And then the third question says what does the title The Holy Spirit indicate about the third person of the Trinity? The same. Does this title does this title relate to the economic Trinity, ontological trinity, or both? Okay. So
0: wonderful question. And it's this one came out around one of the articles, because uh, I have a series of articles going on uh, called The Lessons from the Summa. I'm engaged in this this big uh, reading expedition through Thomas Aquinas' the Th- Summa Theologica, in part because I heard all of these people talk about Thomas saying this, Thomas saying that, and I really believe, just as we need to really seek to learn what a person's actually saying, we need to go back to the primary sources and see what the actual actual person wrote. Uh, let them say it in their own words. And so... I was, wrote an article, it was uh, one of the lessons from the Summa, and this came out, this question came out, these questions uh, came out at about the same time. If I'm understanding the questioner, when they're using the term economic trinity, they're talking about the functionality of of the person and the, of the Godhead, so fi- the Father being the patriarch, uh, uh, being playing the role of a father, the Son being of the role of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and in the role of the Spirit, and so the economic Trinity. If I'm understanding their use of the term, is likely talking about the functionality. Of that person within the triune godhead, the ontolo- ontological aspect is talking about being uh, the, the the person as they exist. So, um, if a person were to talk about Brian Chilton, they would say you know, he's a chaplain, um, a, a pastor, uh, the, the the pastor, cha- the chaplain, the uh, father, the husband. All of those are. Part of my economic identity, the things that I do, the functionalities that I have. So for Curtis, you're a father, you're you're a, you're a husband, uh, you, you're a farmer, a rancher, mechanic extraordinaire, uh, racing champion. Uh, so all of those describe the functions, of the the things that you've done, or the things uh, who you are. But when we talk about who we are, the ontology, we're talking about my existence. And Curtis, we're talking about your existence. It's talking about the person, him or herself. So the question then becomes, do these titles relate to the function of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, or do they relate to the ontological being of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, or is it a both? And I would answer that I think that it's both, and here's the reason why. And it's interesting because I had just come across this in in the Summa Theologica, and just warning here, it's a little deep, so just hang with me. And of course, if you have any follow-up questions, uh, Curtis, feel free to chime in. Or if anyone's online, be sure to chime
1: in as well. Curtis, do you have a question? So, can be, yeah. Before we go, before you answer that, or before you go into that, can you give our listeners that may have just may have just started coming into this or um, have just tuned in, what does ontological mean?
0: So, ontological is is talking about a, a person's being. I think the word "ontos," if I'm if I'm not mistaken, is is the word Greek word for being, uh, or "ontos." I, you yeah. know, I think is how it's pronounced. Is it, talking about being. So, ontology is the study of being. Uh, so, okay, in philosophy, when we talk about the ontological nature of someone, we're talking about that person as they exist. And so when we talk about God, we're okay. talking about, is there a God? And then what is God like? Yeah, is when you talk about epistemology in philosophy, then you're asking the question, how do we know what we know about God? It's, it's a different level. Um, so when we talk about okay. the being of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, ontologically, fancy word, we're talking about those persons as they exist so so to break it down even further what the question is asking is do these terms tell us about the person as they exist or do these terms merely tell us about what the person does just to break it down simply is it talking about the person as they exist or is it talking only about what the person does so did that sure. that clear it up
1: yeah, yeah. I just wanted to make sure that um, that everybody was was uh, on the plate, you know, eating from the same player. Yeah,
0: just hopefully a little clearer than mud, <laughs> a little bit clearer. Well, yeah. so 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 the, well, qu- the go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> so, so the question? No, was I it, was just gonna say. <laughs> yeah, go I got a little um, lag. I think that's what's going. So the questioner's asking is: do, do these do these titles tell us about the person as they exist the, the three beings of the tr- Trinity, or are they just merely talking about what they do? And so, I, again, I would say the answer is both. And here's the reason why: Aquinas tell, t- states that the way we know reality from in our soul is through our senses. Now, he argues in in the 89th question uh, of the first book that we can know things by the soul alone because when the soul is separated from the body at death, it goes to be with the Lord. He fully embraces that and accepts the fact that we're going to know certain things in the soul alone without the senses. And near-death studies, folks, are showing just that. Uh, there are. There are. Kenneth Ring did did a study with 21 individuals who were blind, and who reported having visual experiences after their death, and one of which was a woman named Debbie. knew when she died had been born blind, knew just from the variance of light. Uh, that she knew that she had her mother had gray hair and was wearing a bathrobe and she'd never seen a day in her life now the question is how do they know color I don't know but but she was right on both points that her mother did have gray hair her mother was wearing a bathrobe she couldn't see it she hasn't been able to see a day in her life but yet she knew that when she died it's remarkable absolutely remarkable and there's other occasions of people who had sight went blind, mm-hmm had visual experiences after their death, and they also affirmed uh, or confirmed uh, colors in the room, things of that nature. When they returned to their body, they were just as blind. So all of that is to say that we can know certain things through the soul, Aquinas says, but what we know here on earth is through our senses. So here's the problem. Mm -hmm. How do we understand spiritual concepts without using material terms? Aquinas argues that we can't. And if you think about it, this makes sense because that's why Jesus spoke in parables. Because he's using material things to illustrate spiritual principles. It also answers why certain things in near-death experiences when a person has a vision of heaven, sees heaven, they can't fully explain what they saw because there may not be things in this realm that would describe the things in that realm. So what does this have to do with Father, Son, Holy Spirit? It's difficult for us to understand God anyhow, because God is a spiritual being. And again, remember, we understand through the senses. So when God describes himself to us, By the way, Aquinas says we can know that God exists through natural revelation, through cause and effect. The fact of creation demands the existence of God. But when it comes to the Trinity, that's not something we can know naturally. That has to come by special revelation. That has to be something revealed to us by God. So when God describes himself as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he's using terms we would understand to explain the functionality of, of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God working, you know, God the Father being the source, if you will, uh, the one from which all things flow, the Son being the eternal begotten of the Father, never a time where he didn't exist, but he stems from the Father, eternally begotten, as Logos, uh, and then the Holy Spirit flows out of both Father and Son. We understand their identity ontologically, through their functionality so and i I was thinking about this driving home if it wasn't for those terms how would god in his infinite knowledge and his infinite being (laughs) explain who he is and what he does without using terms that we would understand so there's always going to be a little bit of an area where these and this is what aquinas argues there's always going to be an area where our terms break down when they explain God, and he even so says of those all are the, our
1: terms, though, right?
0: Yeah. So God is taking okay. these truths that are high above us, and he's using our language, bringing it down to our terms. But there's all. But Aquinas argues there's going to be this chasm because God is. So we understand love, but God's actual love is far greater than even our concept of love. Because even our concept of love is not great enough to describe the way God's love actually exists. And as we understand Father and Son and Holy Spirit, even these terms, while appropriate, as are given to us by God, they're still small in comparison to the way God actually exists. So going back to what the questioner you know, writes, you know, talking about economic trinity or ontological trinity, I think it's both. It describes their identity as who they are, but it also, in doing so, describes their functionality within the triune Godhead and how they even relate to us as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Yeah. It's a complicated answer, but it was a very complicated question.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, so then, could that still be the same within their interaction between themselves then?
0: Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think it just shows how, how the three persons relate to each other. Uh, they're all eternally God, but even within the eternal Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they have this functionality. A, a, a Geisler state states uh, that, uh, you know, God, when it comes to salvation, the Father was the designer of the plan, uh, the uh, the uh, the son Jesus is the one who executed the plan he's the one who who um, accomplished it I think he uses the term accomplisher so the father would be the designer the son would be the accomplisher and the spirit would be the applier applying that salvation to our lives uh, just so happens he got that from Thomas Aquinas well, that's because great. reading through the summa Thomas says almost identically the same thing <laughs>
1: that's great yep. hmm so was there anybody that had a question on online let
0: let me take a look and see because I r- realize that is a very deep question. I'm not seeing anything uh offhand let me just double check here on you' not seeing anything offhand so I think we're good
1: to go. Okay. Okay. So, I wanted to, if and if anybody does have any more questions about that, just go ahead and um, even, you know, interact with uh, what we're doing right now or um, get a hold of us on com. So, um, number four, since we answered all three of those questions in one foul swoop, um <laughs> Number four, is baptism necessary for believers in the category of required or not for salvation? Hey, re-
0: really quickly, I, I've got to say, it, this is this is interesting here. I, I did check the, our Facebook page, and I just noticed that we have two viewers, one from India and one from Kenya, so we want to welcome them uh, with us here on the Bellator Christie podcast tonight. So that's just amazing to me.
1: Oh, that's that's great. <laughs> Still blows me away. <laughs> Pulling knuckleheads on. behind <laughs> the microphone can... Somebody's listening way out there.
0: It's amazing, and me with a Burger King cup in hand, yeah. and you with the, the the cow mug. So, so back to your question: Is baptism yeah. nece- is baptism necessary for believers? Um, I I would say it's not necessary for salvation, uh, because my understanding of Scripture says as for by grace we're saved through faith. And that not of ourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I think that's uh, what Ephesians 2, uh, 8 through 10, something like that, somewhere in that area. It's in the ballpark, anyhow. So I think, that if because if you think about it, if you think about it, if baptism is required for salvation, what do you do in cases of deathbed conversions, where someone is at the end of the right. rope, end of life, they don't have a chance to be baptized. Uh, is God going to forfeit their salvation just because they didn't go underwater or, or sprinkled or whatever the case may be? I don't think that's the case. You also take a look at the uh, the man on the cross, you know, the thief on the cross who, who accepted Christ. Jesus says, Today you'll be with me in paradise. And I mean, I believe, that he meant that very day in which he died, uh, the thief would be with him in paradise. Uh, now, I know there's a whole concept of Jesus... Um, you know, being glorified and, and returning back in his body. I, you know, I, there was a period. I think he went down to uh, Hades, uh, from, from what Peter tells us. But I do also believe he went back to heaven. I don't think he was down there the whole time. I think he went to heaven and then uh, descended back to earth, resurrected, and then eventually ascended back with a glorified body. Um, but that's neither here nor there. But so even though baptism isn't necessary for salvation, I do think it is very important that we be baptized because I would have to i I have to be concerned with someone who says, Hey, I want to receive Christ, I want to live a life in, of obedience to Jesus. But I don't want to start off by being baptized, even though he says, Go into all the world and be and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I don't want to do that part, but yet I want to follow Jesus. You got to wonder. Now, listen. I'm not the best swimmer in the world, and my grandpa, my grandpa, who was a jokester pastor. My grandma used to say he he lived right up the road from where I live now. My grandma says the only time you can believe him is when he's in the pulpit. Outside of that, <laughs> it's a fifty fifty chance if he's telling. But no, he was a, he was an upright man, but he was a jokester. And I remember I couldn't swim, and I was there was a river close to us called the Dan River. I was baptized in the Dan River, and I was scared because I didn't know how to swim. And, and Grandpa said, "He says, don't worry, don't worry, I've got you. I, I, I'll, I'll be sure to bring you up before the bubbles stop." I was like, "What?" <laughs> uh, yeah. So, Ooh. so imagine Yikes. being a youngster going that. But anyhow. Uh, <laughs> But I do think it is very important. It's very important. I know people have reservations about the water. But listen, we have baptistries in a lot of churches today. We have rivers. Uh, and a lot of times pastors don't baptize by themselves. They'll likely have a deacon with them or an elder of the church with them. This is something that's very important for us to do. So I don't want people to hear this and say, well, I'm, I'm a Christian. I don't need to be baptized. I think you do need to be baptized because it... it Verifies your public identity Not only your public confession of sin And profession of faith But it also identifies your public entrance Into the church united Uh, It's part of that It's a ritual that that shows us uh, That we have now entered into a global Timeless body of believers A global timeless family And so uh, baptism is absolutely important Is it necessary for salvation no, but it is a very important step in the life of a believer.
1: Mm-hmm. I think um, what it also does is when the, um, the, the church or the congregation that gets to witness that baptism, it builds the joy of the Lord within them.
0: It is the same with communion. I love taking communion. Yep. Uh, there's many denominations that have have it every week and if it was up to me I would do the same thing too because there's something special and sacred about taking the 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 the, the bread and the well, the wine or juice depending on your denominational affiliation uh wine <laughs> We we used uh we we use no uh, typically the Welch's grape juice so it's it's wine light, I guess you'd say
1: <laughs> Yeah <laughs>
0: But mm-hmm. but there's something special because it shows our identity as unified members That's of the right. body and blood of Christ. It shows our union not only with Christ, but our union with each other. And so I think it's important to take mm-hmm. commun- communion frequently and, ver- and very often because I think it's very important. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Good. I love it. I love it. So... Since we're on that on the baptism, let's go to this one, number five. What are what are the nature of baptisms, and what is biblical, or better yet, supported by scripture? And go. I don't want to discredit
0: you know different modes of baptism because different denominations. You know, as Bellator Christi, we are non-denominational, um, a non-denominational entity, and I don't want to discredit anyone who does different modes. Of baptism, but there are there are two or three versions, and under the category, under the umbrella of two major camps, there are those that hold to paedo baptism, which is infant baptism, and this is this is held in some versions of the Methodist Church, some versions of, of uh, Presbyterian, the Catholic Church, I think does this as well. Greek Orthodox, um, the baptism is done for for infants. It's a sprinkling of infants. And the idea is that they're welcomed this new soul into the body of Christ with the anticipation that the church is going to be a family to that child in in hopes that that child will one day come to faith in Christ. Now, there's the other camp, there's the other version that holds to believer's baptism. And believer's baptism means that, that a person is baptized after a person has received Christ confessed their sins professed belief in Christ and is baptized afterward among those who believe in believers baptism there are some that sprinkle and there are some that don't, that baptize by immersion um, i think if you look at the pages of scripture again with 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 the caveat that we are a non denominational entity so we're not we're not going after one particular denomination or another. Uh, but I do believe that a uh, believer's baptism, especially baptism by immersion, is the most biblical uh, because that's the way Jesus was baptized. That's the way the disciples baptized. That's the way John the Baptist baptized. And so I do believe there's a better uh, confirmation for believer's baptism by immersion than, than any other version
1: okay that's good I love it number six I recently listened to a debate or discussion I guess um, is what it was on oral traditions with Bart Ehrman and he stated that we cannot trust orally recorded accounts and stories now, knowing me, knowing that this is your doctorate, um, and you got to spend some time here, um, <laughs> what can you say to help us understand oral traditions better?
0: Well, now, in full disclosure, I haven't listened to all of the um, the, the interview. C- could you give us a kind of a, a brief, a little brief rundown about what he what he says, what he argues? Um.
1: There were multiple different, um, conversations within that, that they were, that they were discussing, but, um, he, he basically stated that, um, um, that studies have been done with psychologists, um, stating that, um, people can hear a story or, um, be assigned a, 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 a task um, and, and they'll come back a couple of weeks later and ask them and interview them, the, the psychologist did, and um, the stories were either uh, like, so they got asked a question specific um, to just think about a certain thing and, and uh, they'd come back and some of those students would say that they actually lived that out. And so, what he was getting at was, um, as as time goes on, even the first person that has sure. the story or hears the story doesn't um, uh, can't recall or won't recall it in full to what um, uh, what was stated. So in
0: other words he's saying that 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 if I'm understanding correctly that that we can't uh remember all the details of something and then so
1: our our i our memories are invalid to recall yeah and and then the story changes over time is what he's getting at um and that uh that it moves into a narrative that that fits the person um, of what they're trying to do benefit the person that's stating it.
0: Well, I'll just say this: that's Hokum and Bologna. <laughs> uh, I mean, come on now. I, I can remember something that happened to me. I can remember a traumatic event that happened to me when I was about six or seven. My my cousins were out. Not trying to tell on them because they've apologized for it numerous times, but they were out they love they're baseball fanatics. They were out hitting rocks and uh, I just so happened to come across and caught a high fly rock right there. It is a miracle it didn't put my eye out and I even got the scar to prove it. I remember that and I also remember feeling, you know, pressure in my sinus and I remember that I didn't start crying until I reached up and saw blood oozing out of my nose and that's when i ran inside to my grandma and grandpa they rushed me over to the emergency room i can even still remember them stitching it up and they had this light over me listen can we remember things perfectly no we can't remember things perfectly but can we remember the gist the core details of something that's happened in the past absolutely especially if something is traumatic or something that's extraordinary I don't know about you, but the resurrection of Jesus would be something extraordinary. And seeing the risen Jesus would be something that I wouldn't soon forget. The reality is that especially when you're dealing with people in an oral culture, a a culture where, and and with with first century Israel, uh, and one of our previous podcasts, uh, Ben Laird mentioned this, and Leo Purser mentioned this, that the price of ink and paper was very expensive in the first century, so it was it, to, to write a document like that would would take some time and effort. You also had professional scribes, so the whole argument that a person could, if a person couldn't read and write, they couldn't write something, that's moot, because they had professional scribes yeah. that would write down things that someone who couldn't read or write would wanted right. to say and would read it back to that person. So that doesn't stand to reason. I do believe all the apostles could read and write, uh, or at least in most part. Anyhow, so the idea that we can't remember details is is ridiculous. Uh, My question to Bart Ehrman is could he remember the day he got married? Could he remember some very key moments in his life? And could that be validated by other people? And the answer to that would be of course he could. He could remember those key events of his life. So, to use that explanation to say that a community of, of believers who witnessed these extraordinary things couldn't remember that is ludicrous. It, it's a horrible argument, and it's just absolutely ludicrous. Now, going back to the issue of oral traditions, there are three basic models of oral traditions. There are, there's the German model, popularized by Rudolf Bultmann, called the informal uncontrolled model when we talk about formal formal versus informal the question is was there anyone there assigned to preserve this information and when we talk about controlled and uncontrolled did they use any tools or were they concerned about passing along accurate information did they commit it to memory or did they just fly by the seat of their pants the German school says that oral traditions in the ancient times were informal and uncontrolled. And they would essentially say that New Testament prophets uh, believe they were filled with the Spirit, so whatever they spoke, they believed they were speaking uh, for, on behalf of Jesus. And so they elevated that to the same level as the words of Jesus. So not, essentially, Rud- Rudolf Bultmann uh, would say we can't know anything about Jesus. By the way, that's the same school that Bart Ehrman adheres to. The second school is the exact opposite. It's the Scandinavian school called the formal controlled model, meaning that there were people assigned and there were communities assigned that uh, wanted to keep, who, who were assigned to preserve and protect the information. And it was also controlled, meaning that they used tactics, they used uh, tools to help them memorize and pass along accurate information. Okay, and then there's a third model, which is in the middle, that came by Kenneth Bailey. Uh, he's, he, he calls this informal controlled model. Now, when he talks about informal, he's not saying that there weren't people who weren't concerned about preserving information, but he says that instead of it being just a handful of people, it was a community of individuals that preserved this information And they used a very controlled methodology uh, to pass it along the interesting thing is if you look at the pages of scripture you don't see if you look at the traditions in the new testament you don't see the informal uncontrolled model you see really a hybrid between the informal controlled model and uh, excuse me, I open up a Bible software program. You see a you see a combination between the informal, uncontrolled model and the uh, excuse me the informal controlled model and the formal controlled model. Because the formal controlled model would be something like you what you would find in in rabbinic practices. Now remember, they called Jesus a rabbi. Okay, so they were concerned about passing along accurate information. Now, I want to share a passage of Scripture with you, too, just to, just to further confirm what we find in the pages of Scripture. We see creeds, we see early Jesus traditions that uh, date back to the earliest church, and um, they all use these, the similar type of language. Well, the Jesus traditions does, don't, but, but the creeds do. Let me, let me share this right quick. Bring this up. Okay, let me know if you can see it.
1: Not yet. There it is. Okay. Okay,
0: There it is. Okay. Now, I want you to look at verse 3. So, Paul here is sharing an early creed. By the way, this creed dates to no later than five years after the time of Jesus. In fact, The evidence, is there's a mounting uh, amount of evidence to suggest this even within months of the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, so look what he says here. For I passed, paradidomai. This is something of a rabbinic practice. He's given something. He's passing it along exactly as he's been given it. For I passed on to you as most important what I also... Received, paralambano, these terms, paralambano, paradidomai, these are very important terms. In fact, they're terms that even uh, kind of are symbols or signposts that what you have uh, is in fact uh, early creedal material. And what's involved in this early creedal material, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. They appeared to Cephas. That's an Aramaic term, by the way. Early Jesus traditions were filled with Aramaisms. And then to the 12. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive. Some are fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, he appeared... Uh, to one born of, at the wrong time, he appeared also to me. Again, paradidomai, paralambano those terms received, uh, passed on, these are rabbinic terms that identify the transmission of something previously received. They were very concerned about passing along accurate information. And when you take a look at, uh, when you take a look at um, the uh, Sermon on the Mount, You find all kinds of examples of Aramaisms, because these are Greek texts, but yet they're concerned about preserving Aramaic flow, if you will, of some of these early Jesus traditions. They they have these uh, mnemonic devices in there, which were practices, kind of the chorus of a song, things of a rhythmic nature that would help you memorize this. You're not always, always going to see this in English, but you will in the biblical languages, this rhythmic pattern that helps you memorize things. So all that being said, all that being said, we have every reason to believe that either... either I, I think there's a hybrid of the Scandinavian and Baileys model. There's a hybrid of the two. But what we can certainly say... Is that the German school is wrong, and that means that this notion that we can't ha- know anything about Jesus of the past, be- because of the early Jesus traditions that we don't know with their eyewitness testimony, that's hogwash. Because let me just take you one more passage of Scripture. Let me share one more passage of Scripture, and I'll and I'll stop, because you got my motor running on this one.
1: <laughs> well, yeah.
0: Because, I mean, after after studying this for over a year, I've become passionate about it. Because there's so much evidence that for someone the of, of the ilk of airmen to come along and say something like that, it's ludicrous. Let's take a look at Luke chapter 1. Let's see what Luke has to say. Now, Luke was not an eyewitness. Okay? But look what he says about the material that he uses. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the Word handed them down to us. The original witnesses handed them down to us. There's that word again, Paradidomai Handed them down to us. So it also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence most honor- honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. Again, that doesn't that doesn't show uh that, that doesn't bode well for the German school. It bodes better for the Scandinavians and for Kenneth Bailey's version.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you and I had had kind of a bit of a discussion about this um, prior to this, and um, there were two things. One that you mentioned, it wasn't just one person remembering, telling another person, telling another person. It was a whole group of people hearing the same thing, and each one of them holding each other accountable for what was being said, or... Recorded within the community, yeah, absolutely, absolutely
0: so if you and here's the benefit of that, so say you have um twenty thirty people, and we know that Jesus had twelve disciples and had seventy two additional disciples outside of just the twelve uh, that he sent out two by two. so imagine you had seventy two people witnessing a car accident. Now are they gonna, they're going to have different angles, but they can all give you and they, and they may be a little different in some details, but they're going to give you a very good picture and depiction of what happened there at the intersection. So to pass that off and say that we can't know every finite uh, that we can't know every fine-tuned detail is really absurd. You don't have to have every fine-tuned detail to know that something happened. If you have a a large community... And remember, when Jesus did something, he did it publicly. There were a few things he did privately, like communion, but even then you had a community of people, of believers there. The The miracles that Jesus performed were public. The messages that Jesus spoke were public. The crucifixion of Jesus was public. The resurrected appearances of Jesus were very public. So you had large communities observing these different things. And when you have community involvement and they're interested in preserving information, that actually, you actually can preserve the, the information better that way than you would if there's just one or two people telling you something and you really don't have any confirmation to it. Uh, that's why Jesus sent people out two by two. Um There was something else I was going to tell you on that note as well. Oh, yeah, here it is. By the way, whenever I took a a class down in Winston, people were asking, because I had just finished my doctoral degree, the doctoral program, finished the dissertation, finished the doctorate. People asked me about what it was that I wrote on the dissertation. And I shared that with the class. There was one student in the class who had lived who was Middle Eastern, had lived in the Middle East for many years. And you know what she said? When I told her about the informal control method with the community involvement and how it's self correcting and if someone says something when presenting something, if they're wrong the community will correct them, she looked up at me and smiled the biggest smile you ever you ever see and she says, That's exactly the way we do it in the Middle East. She says, That is exactly wow. the way we do it. She said, every bit there's a community involvement and if someone's off somewhere the community will rectify it
1: mm. And the my my so that was the first point the second thing we discussed Brian was within this question or statement was that um i can remember a song word for word absolutely word for word rhythm the tone the the tune the beat the all of the stuff that goes with it i can remember that that song word for word and i've heard it you know i first heard it years ago but have heard it since you know repeatedly and so i i don't i don't understand his his um his denial of that.
0: Well, I'll give you a goofier example. This is my goofy example. Whenever I was, uh, whenever I was growing up, I, I used to love the He-Man characters. You know, Castle Grayskull. I actually had mm-hmm. one of those Castle Grayskulls. And, uh, you know, had it like, had like the skull, shape of the skull, and, you know, had the little uh, mouth that would open, and you could, you know, enter your characters in, had ladders, and... I can still remember the details of that silly play, play set. Mm-hmm. Uh, With He-Man, Skeletor, all those different characters. And, uh, of course, your sister also posted a picture the other day with her WrestleMania 6 shirt song with the Ultimate Warrior. And I said, you know, listen, I'm a fan of the Hulkster. So, you know, that was a good WrestleMania, but I didn't like the outcome. (laughs) But I can still remember remember some of those things. So, like you said, a song or if it's a play set, or as a child, or uh, even a wrestling event, those things can become embedded in our minds. That doesn't mean we're going to have a 100% fail-proof recall on every minute detail, but we can bring up uh, the core essence of what happened. And Curtis, I thought you had a wonderful rebuttal to this, because if we are to accept what Airman says, and we can't trust any eyewitness affirmation, and how can we even trust what Airman's saying? Because how would he know? How, how would he yeah. know that day yeah. whether or not, how do we know what he's telling us about the psychology uh, test that he learned about whenever it was, that it that it was right? Because if we can't trust our memories, we can't trust our uh, what we've seen and read and heard, then how can we trust what he even says about a study that was taken about memories?
1: Yeah. Yeah, and and I guess my point that was that was a point made out of frustration um, because the things that he the things that he said was was I want you to listen to these these statements because I've done the research and I know what I'm talking about and I'm passing them on to you, the hearer, and I want you to remember these so you don't have to go and do the research to try to figure out what I just found out.
0: Gary Habermas had a good statement. It was like... Gary Habermas had a good statement. Truth is truth no matter who says it. Falsehood is falsehood no matter who says it. Whether that's a scholar or whether that's a common Joe, Joe ordinary down the street. Truth is truth no matter who says it. Falsehood is still false no matter who says it. And so you know, and that's concerning too. To say, I've done the research; just trust me. Well, obviously, the research he's given isn't trustworthy because it's not taken into account. So even if he, even if if there's some truth to what he says, that's not taking into account. The memories of people from oral cultures where they don't have necessarily tablets or phones or or even writing tools where they have to rely on their memory much more. In fact, a funny thing, and I know we've got to go on to the other questions, but a funny thing, uh, I'm part of Generation X. That's, that's that that generation that grew up without all these technological devices and knows how to get along without them, but now can use them, um, you know, has have, have learned how to do it. But um, I spoke with a person who was a lot younger than me, and they were absolutely amazed that i was able to remember a phone number they were just they were floored that i was able to remember a phone number and i said it, it kind of tongue in cheek but you know and and i it, it, there is some truth to this that i grew up in a generation where we had to memorize numbers right we did right. and the more you memorize the more you have to commit things to memory the better your memory becomes if you don't exercise uh, oh, absolutely. memorization then your memory is not going to be as good so i don't even think that that's yeah. i don't even think that a test showing the, the the memories of today necessarily could apply to all generations and all times if that makes sense
1: yeah yeah he had he he made statements in that in that interview and you know you can go back and listen to it, but he made statements in that interview stating that he, we can't um we can't take what we have today and and say that um uh, or can't take those from the from the ancient and say that they had a better memory than than we do today and I'm like well why not i it just he made these statements he made these just these these statements out there that to me how I was listening to him, was like, wait a minute, you, you just made a statement, now you're moving on from where you're at, as if, poo-poo, we can't do that, and, and now you're trying to make a point, point. and it's like, wait a minute, you back up and, and let's, let's discuss that, because what you're saying doesn't make sense
0: yeah and it does it because it's like the whole thing about oral traditions and the different practices that mm-hmm. people use i mean so you know i saw your eyes your eyebrows raised whenever i mentioned the middle eastern woman said that's exactly how we do it the reason is is because we are we are accustomed to the way we do things in our particular culture we live in a culture that's been blessed with a lot of technological gadgets, we, we've been blessed with a lot of things that help us in our everyday lives. But not everyone has that across the world. And if you're having to rely on your memory and, and things, then it's going to be different than someone who uses all these devices. Um... And, and there's a lot more I could go into that, it's, but, but that's just a ludicrous claim. It, it's really picking its troughs, quite honestly, because, I mean, I think if you even just use the example of the memories we had of yesteryear, the memories of individuals who still don't use technology compared to those who rely more on technology, I think you would find that those who have to rely more on memory Will have a better memory. Well, I know. I remember whenever, whenever I've had to commit. Whenever I was going through learning Greek and Hebrew, I had to commit those things to memory. It took me a while because I hadn't used that that memory muscle in my brain that much. It's like with any other muscle. The more you use it, the more you, the the better you get at it. uh, You know, the stronger you become. The more you use your memory, the more you can remember. And um, see, I'll leave it at that. I think we've. I think we've covered that sufficiently. Yeah.
1: Yeah, we could go on for a long time on that because it, it was definitely it was definitely frustrating on my end um, listening to it. You know, like I've said before, I'm just a dumb old cowboy, and I'm looking at him going, "Dude, the stuff you're saying just it doesn't follow. It doesn't make sense." Well, you know?
0: and, 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 so, and this is something we shared on the previous podcast with Michelle. It's important for us. To be able to think clearly and not take someone's word at face value, it's important that we do things like this because some people may listen to this as well. Why is all this? Why does all this matter? Why? Why does this matter? Core Apologetics posted a survey that said that from Barna, one of the latest Barna research tools, uh, research evaluations that mention, and we'll lay the survey, that less than 1% of all teenagers, or of American teenagers and children, less than 1% are going to maintain a biblical worldview. Less than 1% of American teenagers and children will maintain a biblical worldview at the rate we're going. We've got to get back in the word. We've got to handle these type of issues and show people the truth. Show people that these type of attacks against Scripture are unwarranted. And I think this is just one but just this is just but one example we could give. And people may say, Well, Brian, why are you Curtis so passionate about this? Because the very reason I just gave. We're losing an entire generation because we're not digging into the deeper truths, and we're just neglecting Scripture.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and it goes to this. It goes to the very statement: a lie can get around the world faster than the truth can wake up and get its pants on. That
0: is exactly right.
1: So, anyway. Um, we're running down on time here, Brian. Do you want me to ask this, the number seven, or do you want me to just go into the next one about Mark Phillips?
0: Uh, yeah, go ahead and ask it. I'll just give a, just a couple statements on it, and then I'll, I'll be good, I promise. Oh,
1: okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. okay, in that same debate, Ehrman uh, also was stating that the gospel accounts and its writers are not eyewitness accounts, and we should not trust them as that. A C-
0: couple things I'll say. I think we have good reasons for believing that Matthew and John were eyewitnesses to the events they, they report. But e- number two, even if they weren't, we have Luke, Mark, they weren't eyewitnesses, but they were, they were affirmed and confirmed by the early churches reporting accurate information by eyewitnesses. There were eyewitnesses around by the time these documents were written. They were all they were all written in the first century. Even John, the latest last to be written was written by AD85. 80, we have evidence uh, from one Polycarp written who, who wrote uh, late first century. Uh, early 2nd century, about talking about meeting with eyewitness ac- witnesses and everyone gathering around, listening to what they had to say as they told about their encounters with Jesus. They were held in high esteem. Their elders were held in high esteem. How about that? Uh, <laughs> so, um, but additionally, but additionally, even if none of the biblical writers, gospel writers, the evangelists, even if none of them were eyewitnesses. That still doesn't matter. And here's the reason why. Because if we have good reasons for believing that they preserved early Jesus traditions, then they preserved eyewitness testimony even though they themselves were not eyewitnesses. That was the main point behind my dissertation. That if we have good reasons for believing that these oral traditions in the Gospels are in fact, these early Jesus traditions are in fact uh, or excuse me, let me go back. If we have good reasons for believing that these oral traditions are Jesus traditions, early Jesus traditions, then we have evidence that we have eyewitness testimony in the Gospels, and that's exactly what we find in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, when things calm down in life, right now everything's running at 150 miles an hour. When things calm down in life, my plan is to go back and look at the other gospels, do the same thing I did in my dissertation, but apply it to the other gospels and see what we come up with. And I'm going to I just about I'm not a betting man, but if I were, I'd about bet that we would see the same thing that we find in the gospel of Matthew.
1: Mm. Yeah, I could turn you loose on that question for a long time and I bet you we'd have a heck of a discussion, but we gotta move, we we gotta move on. We the there's next some more there's some more question else. zones coming up. <laughs> right, exact exactly. So um, so I wanted to get into wanted to get into this um, which was a great um, interview by the way, uh, with with Mark Phillips. Um, in your recent interview, um, I had this question of how did the intertestamental period writings influence the time period and expectations of the Messiah or the coming of the Messiah?
0: This is another question. And I was thinking about this afternoon. And in fact, when I was coming home, I was thinking about this as well. I had a couple questions that I was, was, was thinking over. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure whether the writings influenced the culture or the culture influenced the writings, because I do think that. Oh, that. I do think that uh, you know when you look at Daniel, you see these these prophecies he gave that are coming true. You know, through you had Antiochus Epiphanes. Who uh, invaded in the armies invaded Israel? They desecrated the temple, even sacrificing a pig on the holy of hol in the holy of holies. Now, how God didn't strike them down, I don't know, but that was that was prophesied by Daniel, and it came to pass. Um, so they saw these things taking place. They saw the Roman invasion. The Romans were vicious when they came in. Uh, so I think there was already in the apographa. Uh, and especially in the Pseudepigrapha in and Dead, in Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, the writings of the Dead Sea Scrolls, everything, there, there were a lot more people who were becoming more apocalyptic because they saw all these national political things going on and they knew something was up. Um, now, it is interesting at that time because you had the Hasmoneans that came in, uh, or the Maccabeans, I should say, that came in and then freed Israel for a period of time. That's where you get the whole celebration of Hanukkah coming up Jesus celebrated Hanukkah too, by the way. Um, so all all of that had an influence as you're going into uh, as you're going into uh, the New Testament period. I did did find it interesting because you know the Sadducees asked Jesus the question about the woman who had had seven husbands and all seven of them died. That story is actually in the Apocrypha. Uh,
1: it's in the yeah, Apocrypha. That's what, that's what Mark. That's what I heard you guys discussing, and when I heard that, I was like. No way. So it's interesting,
0: and so and so even the teaching I wasn't aware of the teaching in the uh, wisdom literature where it was talking about. Um, gosh, I can't remember the exact quote, but it was talking about don't don't do good to those who do bad to you. Only do good to the righteous. Don't do yeah, good to the wicked. I remember that. But Jesus turns it around on the Sermon on the Mount to say, "Pray for those who persecute you. Do good to those who do evil to you." Now that is a very tough thing.
1: Yeah. he... Yeah, he said. He said uh, in there. He says you've heard it said. You've hear, heard it said that you know. And then he turns it around. I thought that was when I heard that. I was like, wait a minute. Okay, so what they were talking about was what was ingrained in the culture, what was being taught, and and where you know how how Jesus coming against what was a common practice of the culture at that time.
0: Absolutely. So there, there, were, there were these exchanges that happened. So the intertestamental period wasn't a dead time. It was a very vibrant, exciting time. Uh, it was a dangerous time in many respects. But you had all of these things <clears throat> taking place that brings us to the time of the New Testament. The Romans are invaded. They're the occupiers in Israel and across the then known world. And so it sets the stage up. Uh, but then you had what's called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, which allowed the disciples and Jesus to travel these streets. So there was some benefit you know, to it because it didn't necessarily have that freedom beforehand. Uh, but it came with a heavy price.
1: Hmm. Well, the next question, this is kind of going to send us out here. What can we use as an apologetic out of the intertestamental writings that can help give an overall view of the culture and its expectations?
0: You know, I think it kind of goes back to the last podcast with Michelle. She was talking about how even creation, uh, well, even the stories in the New Testament, like she's talking about there's new, there's new um, um, studies going on, new explorations going around the Pool of Siloam. And to be watching that because mm-hmm. that's going to be an interesting hotbed of uh, of um, newsworthy biblical archaeological discoveries that are yet to right. come uh, from the Pool of Siloam. But there are there are cues in that with the five porticos and one of the pools and with these details that many had denied, saying, "Well, there aren't porticos with with uh, well, there aren't these pools with five porticos," and so John must have had it wrong. These details verify and confirm what we find in the pages of the New Testament. So, when it comes to the intertestamental writings, even though they're not scripture, they're not canonical. They're you know the Catholic Church holds them to be Deuterocanonical, uh, the secondary writings, mm-hmm. but not on the same level as the canon. Protestants believe that only the sixty-six books of the Bible are canonical. Uh, all that being said, even still, the the intertestamental literature helps us understand the background and culture of the New Testament. Now, if the New Testament didn't match the background that we find, then we would have every reason to be skeptical, saying, this, this has got to be a later writing. This can't match the times that it, in which it was written. But since it flows mm-hmm. and it fits like a hand in glove, not like the O.J. Simpson hand in glove, but it actually fits like a hand in glove. Or so they'd say. It actually fits like a hand in glove, and uh, <laughs> actually fits like a hand in glove. Then we can be further; uh, it further verifies and validates uh, the the story that we find, the stories that we find in the New Testament. Mm-hmm.
1: So, yeah, that's that's some interesting stuff, and I love that interview. I mean, that that kind of stuff, even like listening to Michelle today, just. Um, what she had to say about the, some of the history and some of what's being found there. Um, it's just it just adds to Jesus' story and the validation of what people have believed for years and years and years. I mean we have we have divided a calendar. What day is it today? What's the, what's the date it, exactly? So yeah. something happened 2023 years ago to, for for the world to make this large of a change.
0: And Curtis, I don't know how much you were able to listen to the uh, the podcast with Michelle, but but uh, if you haven't, she has a wonderful defense of the flood on there.
1: At a girl, <laughs> <laughs> so. Anyway, uh, that's 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 a wrap for today um, with the question zone. And I know um, as we move on in these question zones, I really would like to have some some questions come up from from listeners and from from those that want to have some concerns uh, about the church, about the Bible, about how we understand things. Um, for Brian and I um, We certainly enjoy it And I know um, We we really appreciate that interaction So I'm going to send us out I know Brian and I both want Everyone here listening To go out and live right centered With others around you Good night Recording stopped
0: You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast brought to you by bellatorchristi.com. The views expressed on this podcast may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. This program is protected under Creative Commons Copyright. All rights reserved. If you enjoyed this podcast, then be sure to subscribe and leave a positive review. Also tell a friend. Thank you for listening and we'll see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas.